0: Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland.
1: Dan Auer, San Francisco.
0: This is On the Grid, episode 47. This week we were joined by our guest, Mitch Goldstein, a former professor at RISD and RICA, currently teaching at RIT. You may also know him as Angry Paul Rand. We recorded this just before Christmas, and you'll hear us make mention of that. I wanted to get to the 2013 Design Show up first. This is a little out of order, but we'll be back in chronological order next week. Anyway, here we go.
1: Welcome to On the Grid. This week, uh, Dan could not join us because he's got very important things going on with his job out in San Francisco. So, we are joined by special guest Mitch Goldstein, who, you know, we've never actually met Mitch, but we sort of, like, pass each other like ships in the night here in Baltimore. And uh, you are a design educator and a bit of a writer, and how would you classify yourself?
2: Um, Yeah, I... I I've stopped kind of trying to classify myself because I feel like everything I say feels disingenuous and and somehow exclusive of everything else. So I I teach design. I I make some things, um, probably less than I should, but I'm always trying to make more stuff. Um, And I kind of think a lot about design and, and yeah, I'm just kind of – and art and all that stuff. I don't know.
1: Yeah, you've been at least listening to the show for a long time, yeah. and pointing out when we say stupid things, and reminding us when we say smart things, which happens occasionally too. Yeah, so, every uh, once in a while. it's, it's good yeah. to have you on. We sort of talked for a while about having you on as a guest on the show, and you were happy enough to jump in last minute, so thank you for joining us, and I look forward to the conversation we're going to have.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm really, I'm happy to be here. So
1: Matt, Matt, yeah. how was your week?
0: Oh, good. I'm, I'm trying to wrap everything up before Christmas, because every, everybody in the whole world wants their thing done right before Christmas.
1: How many days off does Pentagram get for the holidays? Are you working, like, day after Christmas? How many days do you have off?
0: If I just didn't take any days off, I would have Christmas Eve, Christmas, New Year's Eve, and New Year's Day. So, actually, those okay. line up pretty well this year. So, I'm just going to take off the gaps in between, and it makes for mm, a pretty nice. nice chunk of time. I get to go home for a little while.
1: Yeah, that actually caused us problems this year. This is the first year we have employees, so we have to have, like, a real like schedule for the office where in past years we're just like "Ah, I'll work from home for a week and a half over the holidays uh, which worked out nicely but now we had to figure it out for ourselves and the places that Christmas and New Year's fell just ruined everything it's like right in the middle of the week so we're like I guess we're there Friday the week of Christmas and Monday the week of New Year's and it feels weird but
2: Mitch, what are you doing? Uh, I have six weeks off, so I have nothing contri- to contribute here. Wow. Mm. <laughs> that
1: great. No, I'm <laughs> a teacher. Yeah. I can take off whenever I
2: want. <laughs> That's actually kind of lot. I mean, it, it's six weeks without classes, but really, I, I have this really delicious fantasy of all this time, and I've got... An infinite amount of stuff to get done between mm-hmm. class prep and, um, you know, a lot of my responsibility is for you know like research and scholarly activity. So I have a lot of uh, grant things and other stuff I'm trying to do and conferencey stuff, and so all sorts of things going on. So I, I did manage to take a few days, kind of quiet time, but it's it's kind of ratcheting up already. Which is I good. I always
1: thought I always thought the best thing about being a teacher would have to be getting that time to like. Do your own thing, both over the holidays and also, you know, over uh, over the summer. Uh, and I feel like if you're actually a teacher, though, you probably lose that time very quickly. As, as things pile up, and your actual responsibilities overwhelm. But it always seems like you could like have a real job and support yourself, and then in that time off, like do whatever you wanted. But it's probably not the reality.
2: Yeah, it it, it you know, it's kind of a funny. It, it sort of is the reality, but it kind of isn't at the same time. I mean, I, I have. I mean, part of what a teacher is paid and this goes for sort of most but not necessarily literally everybody but a, a big part of what a teacher is paid for is theoretically and i specify this with theoretically theoretically to bring in new knowledge to the world so part of my paycheck is for research part of my paycheck is to like think about things and make things and write about things and do things and um yeah it, on paper it feels like a teacher works like 18 hours a week you know shows up to class kind of does some stuff and leaves but really uh, the teaching is maybe not a third; it's more than a third, but it's only a piece of kind of the puzzle. So I, I do have a ton of stuff kind of brewing right now. None of it is really fruitioned yet. Uh, come to fruition? I don't think "fruition" is a word.
1: No, everyone knew what it meant. They could figure it out. So you effectively <laughs> communicated.
2: But it's but it's kind of it, it, it's great because you know you are it is your responsibility, and the school, the institution understands that, so that you are given this time to do stuff. I mean, and to really, to, to take really deep, long dives into work. And that's part of the attraction. I mean, that's part of why it's such a, I think why it's such a great job.
1: Yeah. I have to say, I mean, I finished up teaching my first semester. I taught adjunct at Micah this past semester in class. My last class was on Tuesday and we're now recording on Thursday and I, I, it was ended up being a lot more work than I expected it to be. You know, I expected the six hours in class and I, I estimated like six to eight hours every week out of class for you know, emailing students and planning stuff. I thought that was generous, but I ended up spending a lot more time doing class-related stuff than I had expected to. Uh, it was a real sort of time suck, but...
2: Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I was hoping that a big part of what we could talk about tonight on the show was actually uh, teaching and my sort of first, first, uh, first teaching experiences and your sort of uh, years of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, I thought maybe we could <laughs> sort of plumb that topic because I have, I have a lot of thoughts after my first semester of teaching.
2: Yeah, I'd be curious to hear it, yeah.
1: So my uh, my biggest takeaway from the semester, and I, I I felt like I was doing my natural inclination for teaching the class was to teach like all of the assignments I wish I had been given when I was in school uh, as a graphic design student, and uh, I think my biggest takeaway from the whole class was that I wish I had spent more time just showing existing work, like showing other people's work into the class. Uh, I got to the end of the class, and I sort of. The last thing I did for the last class of the semester was individual meetings with everybody to sort of give them feedback on their entire semester's worth of work and sort of what I see as their strengths, what I see as things they need to work on, um, give them some precedence of uh, artists and designers that are working in the field already that sort of either are working very similar to them or are working very different from them so they could learn from them. And I realized in those, in that last week, in individual meetings, just how few like graphic designers and how little graphic design history a graphic design student. Has when they're in their first semester of the major, and I wish I had like pre- prepared a presentation every week on like here's one you know designer, here's one studio, here's one piece uh, of like successful work because I think there's so much value in looking at that, and I didn't realize quite how little they knew, I guess.
0: Actually, that was the first thing when last time we talked about it, that was one of the first things I mentioned to you was like one of the most valuable things was just learning what's possible in the world because I you know when I started I didn't I didn't know like I, there the things that I liked and the things that I knew I liked. But it was a very narrow view of the world. I didn't really know what was what was even great yet.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think I showed like uh, maybe like four to seven projects per assignment that were like good precedents for, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so if it was a branding assignment, it's like, here's good examples of, you know, good rebrands or bad rebrands or interesting, you know, branding ideas. But I think I should have taken a much more holistic view and step back a little bit and been like, here's... As Sagmeister does. And here's this counts
0: as what... graphic design. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. I think um there's no I mean, there's no shortage of cool shit out there. It's just there's an infinite, endless amount of cool stuff to look at. Um, and I totally agree with you, Andy. I think that a lot of it is exposing students to just, hey, here's something interesting. Maybe it's directly related to this assignment, maybe it's tangentially related to this assignment, but it's related somewhere because it's kind of out in the world. So I think um I have given, I mean, I I hesitate to really even use the term lecture as much as just a show and tell of like, here's 20 slides of some cool shit. And we can talk about it and we'll have conversations about it. And, you know, and I'll typically, I have this giant reading list you guys may have seen me tweet before, which is just like piles of stuff that's kind of interesting, sort of. Um, And yeah, I, I feel like there's no such thing as too many things. You know, you can't over expose a student to stuff Um, but it's tough as a freshman or a sophomore where you know depending on where in the curriculum design history lives you know the frame of reference the context is kind of not there so it's really difficult and 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 i say this and i know i'm going to sound like the oldest bastard in the world for this but i really don't mean it that way but the kind of culture of the sort of tumblr twitter facebook you know thumbs up thumbs down thing where maybe work isn't given as much of a deep consideration, and it's sort of a little bit more of a kind of is that retweetable kind of an attitude. And I know, and yeah. I, I absolutely don't mean that literally, but you know that idea of oh, that looks cool sort of for ten seconds on my Tumblr. Yeah. But do I really get it? Am I really thinking about it? And, and that's something that, and and I've been teaching. This is I think my like eighth year, or ninth year, and. and you know i'm kind of in the internet you know i'm on it i'm doing you know i'm not uh, you know alien to it but it, it seems like the attention spans getting to be challenging and and for myself included not just for the students i'm totally in this with them
1: yeah that's something we talked about on the show before just how the internet by its very structure like encourages things that can be absorbed and appreciated very quickly and is very hard to sort of get things that require some investment on the behalf of the viewer to sort of understand or some you know critical thought to really appreciate. Those things don't flourish quite as much. And uh, yeah, no, I, th- I think, again, I, was, I only have one perspective to look at school and that's the perspective that I had when I was going through it. And I remember that like me and my close friends, like that's all we did was look at work all day. We, we were all over every design blog we could find, you know, 300 things in Google Reader every single day. And that was like I, I think, like you say, such sort of thing is too much, Mitch, and I, I agree that you know exposure is only a good thing. But I, I definitely felt like uh, oftentimes I was looking at work and I gave myself the illusion of like that was improving me as a designer when actually I maybe should have been working on something. Um, and so I, I think I kind of assumed that like these students, being you know four or five years younger than me, must be even more plugged in than I was. When the reality is actually that their relationship with the internet is very very different and in some ways more distant than mine is. Um, so I, it was, I learned a lot about I guess this sort of somewhat younger generation than uh than i had my, my expectations were wrong i guess
2: i spend almost every waking second i'm not in class going did i do a good job today like did i <laughs> did you learn anything was i yeah. on it today yeah, you know too. did i actually do this and um i kind of feel like like to what you're saying andy is that it you know it's it's again i don't want to sound like an old fogey here but you know no, just it, do it the, the sound internet, like an old person yeah be like, that old bastard the internet is awesome in, in so many ways, and I think it's sort of very, very kind of subtly harmful in a lot of ways too. And and I think that you as a student, you know, looking at a million blogs and looking at all this stuff, because this, you know, was a few years ago, right, when you were a student. So so that's great. But I'm kind of wondering, like, how many books about design did you read that like, were oh, not signed? Few. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's a yeah, big difference. Few. And again, not, I'm not talking print versus web. I'm talking more about a really beefy really really big bite of something versus like a nibble Mm -hmm. um and that's kind of to me what again not for every student not every day not every time but seems to be sort of wearing away it's or it's harder to get into you know a really deep deep dive into a topic is is appears to be kind of difficult to find these days
1: yeah no i was definitely just snacking i was at the uh i the bar, eating the bar food for (laughs) for the whole, for the whole, every meal, basically. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I mostly, I'm just really, really excited to try and improve everything I did this semester and hopefully teach a similar class again in the future. I don't know if I have the opportunity, but I really hope to, because I feel like most of the things I did, I was very happy with, uh, but the things that I do want to change, I think will have a big, a big impact. And I, I mean, I love sharing work with, sharing great work with people, especially people that haven't seen it before. And it just I felt like I was gonna be like preaching to the choir if I started talking about, you know, Sagmeister or Paul Rand or uh you know, some of these like, you know, enormous figures in our in our in our history, but I don't think any of them were aware of any of that stuff. And I right. missed a big opportunity to be like to hand them the keys to the kingdom and to be the ones to expose them to this great thing. Uh so you know, you live and you learn and then you teach a better
0: class next time, I guess.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'm I'm kinda of curious about the idea of like just just kids snacking away on little design treats and never getting their their, you know, information vegetables or whatever. Mm, visual metaphors. Um, nice. Do you, do you have any success, Mitch, in, in trying to get kids to read the bigger chunks of design information and like getting a little bit more history and a little bit more information into what went into these things that maybe they even they've hit the like button on a couple of times in their life? Or is it like just we just keep designing these systems that reward these really minimal bits of, of feedback and that just keeps spiraling out of control?
2: I feel like the the real deep dives, the real deep discussions, you know, it's great if a student picks up whatever Invisible Cities, like the archetypal design school book, you know, sure. um, and like goes and reads it and thinks about it and makes work from it. But until the student really comes into the classroom and there's 15 of us or 18 of us sitting around a room talking about the work, talking about their influences, talking about their process, talking about kind of what happens, it sort of doesn't really necessarily matter that much. And if the student looked at the Wikipedia page for, you know, Invisible Cities versus actually sat and read with the book, I have a theory that those things will manifest themselves very differently in the work. You know, I mean, that's that's the, the theory that I go by, but there's really no way to know. Right. You know, so, so I guess the, I, I hope to sort of toss out these like grenades of like knowledge or at least grenades of like names and references. I, I would- hesitate to say I really give people actual knowledge, you know?
1: I think that's your job,
2: Mitch. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But that's the question, right? You know, it's not like what I know, what I, Mitch, know, and what I, Mitch, sort of understand about design. It's only one perspective. And and I always feel like the danger in education is the teacher is right which is not necessarily true and i one of the very first things you can ask any of my students one of the very first things i say is that just because i say it i'm not correct i might be correct or or maybe let's say i might be sort of relevant but not necessarily i think that i treat the classroom very much like you know 18 or 20 equal people not teacher and 18 students i just don't believe that's the way it works And I think it has to be kind of an equal partnership and we're all kind of in it together. So the point where I'm leading to this is that, you know, saying these three books are great or read, you know, or Paul Rand is a brilliant genius or X, Y, Z is bad. It's bullshit because it's just my opinion. I can't tell these people who they should admire. And and I get very worried and, and concerned when blogs do this. Here are the top 25 most amazing people you need to know. Shit like that drives me crazy because it's just, it's so disingenuous. And, and if a student feels like, well, crap, I could drop $200,000 on art school or I can just, you know, read a bunch of blogs. I mean, there's such massively opposite things that, that it just gets me really curious about the nature of teaching and kind of how we're trying to do this.
1: Well, if they're trying to get on those top 25 lists, they probably don't have to go to art school. They can yeah, probably just get really true. good at a particularly <laughs> trendy type of illustration or something, or maybe like hand lettering, and, uh, <laughs> and they can march their way up the up the flagpole that way.
2: Yeah, there is that.
1: <laughs> One of the things I struggle with is you know coming from... All of my creative processes right now revolve around the world of software and building digital things, and uh, you know that that world sort of lives and dies by the you know work fast you know minimum viable product you know rapidly iterate sort of mentality so that is very much the way I do things. I like do a lot of things and see what works and see what sticks and see what I like, and then you know do more things based on what I learned from those first set of things and uh, I, I struggle with that in teaching because the stakes are so much higher in teaching than they are anywhere else and you know like like gd1 to me which is the class i taught which i think it's like the most amazing opportunity to kind of uh introduce someone to this whole world but at the same time like it's an enormous responsibility to not like ruin their perceptions and like set them off on, on the wrong <laughs> foot for what like design can be right. and so i had i struggled a lot with like how much i should experiment with with this, these students, with their like, you know, their their relationship to this career. I don't want to overstate my impact on their on their life, obviously, but but I do think it can be very important to have you know a, a good class introing you to the subject you end up studying for the rest of your life. And uh, I don't know. I, I was curious, Mitch, how you sort of approach doing new things that you have no idea how it's going to pan out, and no idea if people are going to hate it or not learn anything from it. All in favor of you know learning for yourself, so you can then do better in the future. Like, are, are the stakes too high for that? Like, how how do you draw the line?
2: Um, you know, I. I... A very wise person who you all probably know, Zay Frank from the internet, <laughs> sure. um, yes. who I really admire in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. But he, um, in one of his many videos, he talked about this idea of fuck it, let's do it, which I know is not original to him. But but that notion of fuck it, let's just do it and see what happens. I think that's the only way you can do it. Now, obviously, I plan. I have a lot of ideas. I think a lot about stuff. I outline ideas. and. And how things will work, and schedules, and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's like fuck it. Let's just try this and see what happens. Because this approach, and I hesitate to say it might be wrong. I I don't know if this approach is necessarily the best way for me to be doing this. But this is just how I approach the classroom. Is it's a discovery. The, The entire educational system is a discovery, and I approach these assignments as no matter what happens, even if it's like the worst project I've ever given, they're going to discover something. Maybe they'll discover how much they hate, <laughs> you know, this particular idea of this project or this this topic that I put in, or or if they worked with this tool and it pissed them off to learn that. I, I also think that that leads to often many very good discoveries and people are like, holy shit, I didn't know you could like think about stuff not with a computer or, you know, any number of kind of discoveries that might happen. So I try to keep my classrooms. I mean, I really think of a class as like a framework, less than a than a class. Um, and it's like here's some ideas, and here are the sort of course goals, and these are the sorts of things we want to get the students to learn in this class. But in terms of me saying, you know, today I'm going to teach you exactly these four things, I think that's bullshit. That's just that's crazy, and I don't think any teacher would think that that's how it works. So I, I, I tend to be somewhat fearless in just trying whatever and, and seeing what happens because I really believe at the end of the day, no matter how much a project may have crashed and burned to me, any good student is going to get something. You know, I, I try to go to like every single lecture I can go to, even if it's a designer I either maybe don't like for somebody, whatever reason or don't know for whatever reason, there's always value. There's always something to learn.
0: I always wanted to go to the lectures of the designers I don't like. I was always kind of curious about what they had to say for themselves, even though that's kind of yeah.
2: a <laughs> terrible attitude.
0: <laughs> what do you have to say for yourself? How are you gonna explain what you've done, yeah. mister? Um but actually it's it's funny the the frame of the, the classroom is this like drastic, like very serious thing, and you're worried about ruining the the minds of, of young kids. Because I, I look back at at what what design school was for me, and I think like, oh man, that was like the safest environment. I should have just done anything and failed. Yeah, and that's and what, I what I tell them all the time. But it's funny the way you frame it. Like, do you not see it from your side? as also like the safest environment where these kids can do, you know, they, they can fail miserably, but we're gonna get something out of it.
1: I I don't know. I guess I hope my I guess I'm like too paranoid to to see it that way. Like so the the, the two big I would say experimental in air quote things that I did this semester that. I wondered if it was going to be a good choice before I did it, but I sort of just went for it. Um, one of them was making code, specifically like Git, HTML, and CSS, an integral part of the curriculum at GD1. I made everybody learn that. Uh, that was part of the requirements of the class. And the other thing I did that was, I think, a bit uh, questionable maybe, was I left most of the assignments uh, very theoretical. So things like format and uh, like specific deliverables uh, were very open-ended. Um, and my theory with that early on in the semester was that the the good students would really thrive there, and maybe the students that were not so good would kind of struggle with it. And that ended up being true uh, to to a much bigger degree than I even expected. Um, basically, we don't give them exact things to do every week. The students that are struggling are just going to not do anything, is what seemed to be yeah. seemed to be the yeah, thing. There. Sure. So so I like so the floor was a lot lower uh, for for those students that were down there than uh, than it would have been if I had been like. Come in next week with six logos printed out eight and a half by 11, black and white, and we can talk about which one's good which one's bad. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I wonder if I've done somewhat of a disservice to the students in my class that were not as engaged. Uh, I also wonder to a certain degree how much I'm able to engage people that aren't going to, you know, put in the effort and, and, you know, do the work. So, I don't know. I, I'm still kind of wondering, but I, I will definitely, next time I teach this class, try to figure out a way to bring that basement up a little bit, to, to bring the, the lower bound a little higher. Um, and maybe it's like, you know, setting requirements and saying, if you have a good reason, you can not, you know, meet the requirements of whatever, but I don't know I, I, I do. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like it's, as, it's as safe for me as it is for, for the students. Cause I mean, the students are there to be on their own sort of personal journey. And, and Mitch, I appreciate your attitude of, you know, trying to see yourself as a peer with these people, but, uh, you know, to a certain degree, I'm expected to, you know, impart them with some sort of, you know, knowledge and give them a uh, direction and uh, yes, I, I feel like I have more responsibility in that relationship in some way.
0: I mean, do you ever cut bait on those kids or are you do you find a, a way to get them involved? And, and does, it, does it turn around ever?
2: I tend to teach, I, I approach the class at a level that I think is just above what the best student can handle. So I always teach basically above the class level. And what I have found through experience is that Every single time, the students always exceed my expectations. So, all I, of them? Oh, well, oh, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> Not all of them. Not Jimmy in the back. Come on. That—that's kind of the catch. And the catch is that the 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 students who are at the kind of bottom end of the curve, I think, with me and the way I teach and this this very you know sort of process oriented, very discovery oriented kind of attitude, this methodology that I try to to use. I think the good students do really well with me and, and and can really go maybe beyond where else they where they could have gone normally. The the flip side of that is I think the students who are really not as strong tend to struggle more in class with me. And and I and I honestly, no joke, wrestle with this all the time. I mean, not necessarily on an hourly basis, but very frequently. I, I, I wonder, you know, it is my role as an educator to educate. Everybody, even if that means the students who are really in the higher end are kind of bored or not as excited, but I'm catching the students on the lower end, is my role to teach to sort of the average student and then, you know, both sides kind of get a little disappointed somewhere? Is my role to teach to kind of the best students and hope the other people catch up? And I'm really not sure what the answer to that is. I do feel that my job is not to make you excited, you already need to be excited. If you're not excited and you're dropping what it costs to go to art school now, then you're just you're an idiot for even being there. I mean, really, like, why are you even fucking wasting your time?
1: Th- that was part of my thing. Is I, I definitely like I-, I think I I love teaching, uh, but I love teaching in a specific environment. Like, for example, I could never teach at like you know a public school where people are forced to be there whether they want to be there or not. Like, I have to have this baseline of you chose to be here, you probably paid a shit ton of money to be here. Uh, You're not going to art school because you know of all the lucrative jobs that you can get when you get out of it. Like you're here hopefully for the right reasons and that you want to get better at this and and develop a skill. So I, I think that I take that for granted and I assume that much and then build the curriculum on top of that. But I I do wonder, Mitch. I I wrestle with the exact same thing, and and you obviously have a lot more experience than I do. But I I wonder if the way that you know you and I teach might not be compatible for some people, and I I do wonder if I'm doing them a disservice. Uh, You know, you have a student in your class that might be from more of a fine arts background, and you know, struggles with this kind of thinking. And I I, I do, you know, try and figure. I don't know. I wrestle with it as well, and I'm kind of on the other side of it. I think that I do need to do a better job of. That's the other thing is I don't think that you have to. Do a disservice to the best students to necessarily also make sure you're paying attention to the lower students. I, I feel like some people have that assumption about teaching that you can't possibly teach a class that could work for people that you know, are not coming in as excited and don't have as much you know skills or prior history, and people that are. Um, I, I, I kind of refuse to accept that reality, but I definitely have not you know reached the point where I can actually reach both those audiences.
0: But I do remember that that was always the stereotype of, or not. Even, I mean, it, there was a there was a lot of truth to it of you know, the the professors at, at any given art school, I mean, at mine, it was always that there were the teachers you took if you wanted to get an easy grade and then the teachers you wanted to take if you were really interested in doing what you're doing and they right. tended to be mutually exclusive. The kids that didn't, that weren't all that interested. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, the kids that weren't all that interested would take the class and you could get an easy grade and there's, you know, the teacher that's going to do the kind of standard thing. And then there are the professors that were really... Pushing everybody, and the only the only students that liked them and did well in their classes were the ones that were really really interested. And there, not that there wasn't a middle ground, but those two extremes did exist, and they tended to be true.
1: You see, at Mica, if you want to get an easy grade, you go to Mica, and then you get. <laughs> you get, you get yeah. I don't know. I mean, that, that really is the truth of art school. At least you know, Mica. Like you could absolutely bullshit your way through art school and pretty much do no real work. Uh, and learn nothing and still come out of it with a degree. Oh, I've like seen those kids. It's scary. But yeah. I, I don't think that's a secret. Uh, and you know, at least like for so my students, for example, like my, my class, the professor said TBD when they registered for classes. So no one had any idea who was going to teach the class. Ah. None of them had any idea who I was. So it was you know a total, it was whatever fit in their schedule, I think, uh, is how students got in my class. Um, so yeah, I, that's, I, there's definitely not that dynamic at Micah. It's not the easy teachers and the hard teachers. There are some people that are notoriously like mean and critique or something, for example. Um, but it's definitely not a grade thing. At least, I least mean, I don't want to,
0: I don't want to say that they're like the easy teachers. Like you're automatically gonna get a good grade no matter what. I just mean they're like more so that just on, on the more difficult end, there are the professors that will make you work incredibly hard for your grade, but it's very rewarding if you take the class. And if you're not that into it, you're really not going to enjoy yourself.
2: As a, when I was a student and I've been a student in both undergrad and grad school and the, the, the classes that at the time maybe pissed me off the most were the classes five years later that I realized were the best classes I had. Yeah. So, so you know, this notion of I like my professor is kind of I don't really give a shit if you like me. Yeah. I mean it would be mm-hmm. nice. It would be great if you like me and we could be BFFs and whatever. That's fine. <laughs> but I don't really give a fuck because that's not what you're here for. I'm not here to be liked. I'm here to kind of hope help you learn some stuff and be exposed to some stuff. So yeah, I do think, you know, teachers get reputations. Now I'm brand new where I'm at Rochester Institute of Technology and I just finished my first semester. So I still am like an unknown X factor person here. You know, they don't know what my deal is yet. I mean the the administration does, but the students don't know me yet. So I'm I'm getting some students who are in my classes who are like, what the hell is this guy doing? And some students who are like, holy shit, this was great. And, and some students who are probably You know, couldn't care less, kind of either way. And um, I do think that teachers tend to get reputations at schools. You know, most art programs are not massive, massive, you know, 20,000 person institutions. I mean, it seems like, you know, almost most art schools seem to be like 2,000 to 3,000 people. Either MICA as an entity by itself, RISD as an entity by itself, the sort of art school inside of RIT is about 2,000 people. It just seems to be like that's the number that kind of works. And obviously there are exceptions, but what happens is that means it's sort of X amount of faculty and it's small enough where you kind of start to know who everybody is and everybody gets reputations and everybody kind of like, oh, if you're really into this, you want to take that person. If you're really into that, you want to take that person. So yeah, I, I kind of feel like the grade thing is just a whole nother outrageously difficult Subtopic of this teaching thing that drives me crazy personally. Yeah, I can't, I, I, I can't, I can't yeah. handle that. I wish it was pass fail. I really wish art art and design school was pass fail because at the end of the day, you know, a letter grade. I mean, w- there's reasons for it that are more administrative than they are about kind of really your performance. It's more about like scholarships and things of that nature. Um, but really, the grade becomes. I kind of feel sort of pointless in a lot of ways, um, especially with grade inflation, which happens in pretty much every institution I've ever been in. You know, A is an A, a B is like, you didn't do that great. A C is you suck. And a D is like unheard of. You know, I mean, it's kind of like the weird, it's like ABF, basically, right? you know, and that's worthless. Like, who cares? You know, I'd rather do like a one to 10 and then just give everybody an A because who gives a shit? It doesn't matter, you know? And, and if they're, you know, I've had students tell me, well, I just want to get a good grade. And I'm like, well, first of all, that's not going to happen because that attitude is absolutely incorrect. Um, and second of all, you know, if you really just want a good grade, like I'll give you an A and don't come in again. <laughs> because like, what are you here for? You know, um, I should note to anybody listening that is a colleague of mine, I have not actually done that. But that is <laughs> yeah, exactly. a dream of mine to say, I'll give you an A, promise me you don't ever come in. <laughs> because if that's all you're here for, then why am I going to waste my time? like giving you a crit, you know, and spending time on you.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, Mitch, I think some students like that's the way that they can look to to know that they're doing what they're supposed to do. And like, I, we, are, we are clearly the people that do not need that validation to know that we're on the right course. But I don't know, for, for a young student, I, I don't think that uh, that's necessarily an indicator of them being there for the wrong reasons, just maybe not yet knowing how to sort of self-validate and self-justify their, their growth and their
2: progress. And that's exactly my point yes, I agree with you. And that is exactly the problem. The problem is, is that we need to approach education and students need to approach education as a, what what I feel is kind of like an intangible investment in themselves. You know, it, it, it'll it will pay off somehow. Maybe it'll pay off with jobs. Maybe it'll pay off with knowledge. Maybe it'll pay off with grad school. Maybe it'll pay off with any number of things. But this idea of that, if I got an A, I did it "Quote correctly" scares the shit out of me. That that notion frightens me. That there is a kind of correct way to do it, and an A equals correct, you know, and a B equals slightly less correct. You know, I, I, those 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 things really frighten me. I, I think it's just a very weird kind of quantitative attitude towards something that is inherently totally not quantitative. And and maybe it should be. I mean, I don't know. I, I could be. I always say that I, I could be completely incorrect, you know, in every way. <laughs> Um, but that's just the way I approach it is it, it's, is it's such an endless education, you know, design school is really the first tiniest little push off the edge of the, of the, of the, of the cliff, you know, and you really fall off the cliff for the rest of your life. And, and I have this dream that right before I'm dead, I'll go, okay, I got it, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I know that's not going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I kind of accept that. So I just, I, I just, I see what the students get. Hence, about, and I see where they get stressed, and they get stressed about, oh my God, is this an A or an A minus, or is this, you know, and I want to kind of be like, you're worrying about the wrong thing. And I think we need to teach them that that's not the right thing. You know, that that notion of, you know, one of these five letters is sort of all you should be paying attention to isn't really correct. And I totally agree with you, Andy, that an 18-year-old may not understand that. And, and have no reference for that, yeah.
1: And we could tell them all we want, that they shouldn't care about the, the quantitation of their of their progress, and they shouldn't care about this sort of number or this letter. But, you know, when when scholarships still rely on it and when they're the looking at their yeah. thing and saying, I'm paying all this money, what are you doing getting a C? Like, the rest of the world is still using this metric and probably will continue to use this metric for a long time. So I, I, I try and be uh, understanding to students that are fretting that, although I do, I, I can't empathize. I was never in that place as a student. I cared about right. my grades, I also, I struggle with grades on maybe even a higher level in that I, when I first started the class, I I didn't know, you know, filling up, making the curriculum, tell people how they're going to be graded. Uh, I didn't know how to grade people, period, because (laughs) like, I think most, most professors or teachers would grade based on competency in the course material at the end of the semester. So, you know, at the end of the semester, you know, do you have the foundational skills for GT1, whatever we've decided magically those things are, uh, can you demonstrate it? Uh, and if so, you receive a good grade, um, which I always struggle with because especially at a place like Micah, where you have some people coming from art magnet schools that have been doing, you know, a trade or a craft for, for years and some people that, you know, are there doing it for the first time, uh, there's a there's a big range of pre-existing skills and knowledge. Um, so, so what I did in my class is I, I graded on... On effort, uh, I graded on uh, demonstration that they were able to respond to feedback, critical feedback, uh, and sort of class participation, uh, and that's what I graded them on. And I said on day one, like this is what you're gonna be graded on. And at the end of the semester, separately, I will tell you sort of where you are, you know, with regards to you know the the craft as a whole, with regards to your peers. So you may get an A in this class. You may have worked really hard. You may have you know responded to critical feedback. But I will tell you at the end of the semester, you know, you're gonna get a good grade, but you still have a lot of work to do before you're, you know, able to do this professionally. You're able to, you know, demonstrate competency in some of the foundational things, um, which I think was the right way to do it. But I'm not sure always, of course.
2: Yeah, I mean, my system, which has developed over time, so it's taken a while to get to this, is basically a grading rubric. You'll hear that term a lot, um, and it's essentially just a uh, like a spreadsheet, like a like a a celled spreadsheet. And I grade typically on um, what I loosely categorize as process. Product and professionalism. Professionalism being things like attendance and participating in critique and handing your shit in on time. Um, product being the sort of end results of things, the the outcomes of things, the deliverables, for lack of a better word, of things. The craft, whether it kind of did what you thought it wanted to do, whether it did what we thought it wanted to do, and then process, which to me is really the beefy part, the interesting part, is you know kind of how you ideated, how you kind of. Brought in your ideas, how you examine the the questions, your mode of inquiry, things like that. Um, but really, in theory, all of these things are being pressed up against the course objectives. So that's kind of what you have as a teacher to look at: like, did the students fulfill these course objectives, which are really made by the faculty as a whole, not by me? You know, that's the departmental course objectives for this particular course, and that that's the theory. That's that's the way it's supposed to work. The reality is I'm grading an awful lot on attitude. And by attitude I mean their general excitement and engagement in the class. So you could have a student who hates the class, like clearly hates the class, but is really engaged in making the work for the class and that student can still be like an A as far as I'm concerned. But then you can have a student who loves the class but kind of just sits there like a lump and doesn't really do a whole lot because it's, it's like, oh, this is like a fun club. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they're just kind of like, oh, this is cool and Mitch is funny and I saw some interesting stuff and, you know, I guess I should probably do this project at some point and get it done. You know, that's not necessarily a good student. You know, that's not an A student. And and the real twist is I've had a few students, um, even just this semester, who really tried doing something really out there and it was just Horribly bad, I mean it just did not yeah, work
1: that's what I to said.
2: to me that's an a because because the, the student had the balls to try it, and the student learned about this notion of failure and I know that's been beaten into the ground forever but you know it's it's something that they really do have to learn they have to learn to suck they have to learn to actively blow some of their work really badly and so I think that's something we should really reward now the idea that they should learn to suck forever is not the idea but that they can understand that the sort of preciousness
1: (laughs) mitch's curriculum never stops sucking (laughs) yeah yeah.
2: you know like the preciousness of every single thing you do being perfect is just bullshit that is just not what it is i mean i have been a quote professional designer for however many years 15 years or 12 years whatever the hell it is and i have got far more piles of stuff that sucks than that stuff that was good but because i allow myself that kind of you know luxury of failure or the luxury of making work that doesn't work then i get the good stuff and and i know that for most of us listening to this podcast that's kind of not really news like we know that but to an 18 19 20 year old that might be very new you know that idea might be a really yeah. weird notion that wait i can fuck this up and it's still okay so that's kind of what i Again, all of this is what I hope I'm doing. I, I You'll have to ask my students. I think I'm doing it.
1: Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. I was happy to tell a lot of my students and very, very glad to remind them, just, just so you know, like, you're going to continue to hate everything you do as soon as you're you're out from it uh, for oh, yeah. the rest of ever. Like, that, that's never going to stop. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, I, told, I, know I told my students on day one, like, listen, this is a GD1 class. You're all graduating in, you know, three years unless you screw something up. And uh, you're going to hate everything you do in this class well, well before you graduate. So we can just get that right out of the way. Uh, you're going to hate it all. Um, and I, I think that's, I don't know, kind of a healthy attitude, at least when I embraced that attitude in myself and started, stopped seeing myself as sort of like a negative, uh, depressive person about my work and more sort of seeing myself as, you know, critical and, you know, constantly pushing for something better. Uh, that was a healthy move for me. So uh, I don't know. It was it was good to... I, I, I'm, I'm glad to be so close to my students, too, uh, in, you know, age. I'm only like, I think... Five years ahead of most of them, I guess, in like right. life, and uh, I don't know. I think being that close is actually very helpful because I can say like, listen, like I was where you were like very,
0: very recently, mm-hmm. and here's what I fucked up, and don't fuck that up. Uh, it's a really bad idea. So, but the flip side of that is super scary. If you just look at everything you do and go, "Oh, this, this was just awesome. I did everything right. Everything's <laughs> great. I'm just gonna keep doing this over and over and over and over again."
1: Oh, you, you're you're describing you're describing the top 25 designers on that <laughs> list, aren't you?
2: <laughs>
0: oh snap! Yeah, that's a funny way of putting that. But actually, it does. I mean, obviously, it does get scary when you're working in a professional environment and the the expectations are super, super, super high but even obviously then you're not it's not it doesn't change anything you're going to look at the thing you did a, a year ago a couple of months ago and even if it's just like even if it's just little things to so figure out a better way to do that or or noticing the little things that could have gotten better it's gonna, it's going to happen forever and i i would be terrified of the designer that doesn't have that feeling
1: the safest place to be is the place where you're your own harshest critic uh and then everyone else is going oh this is really great this is beautiful and you're like oh it's shit but i'm glad you think so it means i'm still doing the right thing yeah
2: there's a really big difference between training someone and educating someone and you know training someone is basically sort of kind of essentially kind of memorization and you know that's I can do you know you can train a dog right um but education is really about this idea of self criticism and and inquiry and all these things that 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 I think the point that's the point of school you know is education not training and and again I think I maybe diverge from a lot of act faculty in this way I I I know that I tend not to talk about the job as much as a lot of faculty do, and and again, this may be to a fault. Um, I kind of feel like, from my experience, having you know graduated and run a studio and made enough money to live, and, you know, not get more credit card debt, that I kind of figured it out, and and I'm not particularly brilliant by any stretch of the imagination, so the hard stuff to learn isn't you know, how to like deal with a client or how to write up a brief, the hard stuff is really the conceptual stuff and the the making stuff and the process stuff, how to write up a brief, you could figure out pretty quick, you know, how to, how to do this new thing in InDesign, I don't think is particularly interesting, but, but the bigger things are very interesting, you know, and, and that's why the tools, like, that's why Andy, I'm kind of curious how your, the kind of code stuff you were doing, you know, how they, how the students react to it, how they either loved it or hated it. Because I think it's a really interesting way to do it that my first glance was like, ooh, I don't know if that's going to work. But the more I've thought about it, the more I'm kind of curious. Maybe, and it might take you like a few months to figure out how it went. But I'm really curious about what you think, you know? So
1: I think that the response was good, better than I expected. At least my year in school, I think my year was particularly toxic in that there were so many people in my year that wanted to like open up a screen print shop, or like, you know, get an old letter press and there was nobody that was interested in like building things with code. Right. And, uh, I know from like the survey I gave my students on the first day that like many of my students were like, I would like to learn how to make websites that seems cool. They exceeded my expectations in that regard. Um, and the reason I did the code thing was not strictly because I think that code is an important skill for a designer to have, you know, strictly the training thing, although I do think that at the end of the day, they got, you know, some sort of very practical skill. It was mostly because working in code, especially when it's uh, something you're not good at you don't know very well I think it sort of forces you to work in the way that I want them to approach all of their work which is this sort of uh, discovery exploration that you're sort of describing Mitch so that if you don't know how to make a page look the way you want it to look with you know CSS you don't have the skills to do it you're forced to self-learn and you're forced to you right. know change your direction when you can't you know put those things side by side like you wanted to um, and it also the, the way I taught it I sort of Uh, They had one code project going throughout the entire semester was to document all of their work and process for their other projects. Um, So they had to revisit that website every single week. Uh, I sort of forced that iteration on them whether they wanted to or not. They had to sort of constantly improve the same thing over and over again and constantly evaluate their own decisions. So I I, I viewed it more as a sort of a, a Trojan horse for this particular way of thinking and for this particular process. Um, with the added benefit of ma- now maybe you know a little bit about CSS and you, you know how, how to teach yourself something, uh, which was kind of the goal. Uh, but I really I have no idea if that was successful. And I'm actually kind of excited to follow these students throughout the rest of their career at Micah, to kind of stalk them on the side and look at their portfolios online and stuff to see if and how it's manifested itself. I, I know I know a lot of students that told me that they were very happy they learned some sort of code thing they didn't expect to, and now they felt like they had something that was very good under their belt but I also don't think that the students can be trusted to evaluate their own education very well, especially not at this stage. So so I don't know. I don't know if positive response from them actually means that it was a good thing to teach or not. Some of them did feel very frustrated with it, but I, I don't think it was a bad frustration. I think it was a, I'm new at this and I need to work hard to get through it and learn my own sort of way to, to get around in this new world. And I think that's a healthy thing to learn. So yeah.
2: And, and I really think that that idea of kind of self learning is really important. I mean, my my attitude with the technical stuff, the the just the over the software stuff, the kind of technical stuff is basically Google that shit, like, like, literally just Google that shit. Like I can explain to you which buttons to hit, but you're not going to really learn it until you Google it and you figure it out. And I want to make this thing do this and do this. How do I do that? Let me figure it out. And I really think this like figure it out attitude is really important. And, and, and you know, I, you guys have I've tweeted stuff like this, but, you know, the, the, the technology needs to be just a holistic piece of the puzzle. It is not the Photoshop class or the, you know, HTML class. It's the ideas class. It's the concepts class. And these are the tools we're using you know, these are the pieces that we're building. But I get tense when I'm like the students like, oh, I have my Photoshop class next. And I'm like, wait a minute. That is not what you have next. Maybe if you think that, you know, I just kind of reconsider. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, that's not what it is. So my, my approach, and again, this is something that a lot of we, you know, as faculty, we have this conversation like constantly about how do we, improve, you know, where does the tech live? How does the tech sit in the in the curriculum? Is it a, its own class? Is it blah, 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 you know, it's this endless conversation. And, and I'm starting to almost feel like the computer isn't really like the magic box anymore. It's not this mystery thing. It's just like a thing we use. It's a pencil. And, and that this really freaky, how do we do with this kind of conversation is starting to become less relevant as the students know more and more coming in. You know, I'm certain half the students I try to teach Photoshop to know way more about Photoshop than I ever will. And that's great. Like, that's fantastic. It levels the playing field. It makes the, you know, the friction sort of a lot lower, which I think is good. So that's why I think you, Andy, you know, kind of pulling the code in on day one as not this separate thing, but as just welcome to design. I'm really kind of fascinated by it. I would never try it personally because I don't know it well enough, but... I, I'm kind of like really, and I and I kind of like want to report from you in like a year, you know, when yeah, you see your I, I'm students. I'm going to follow
1: them for sure. Yeah, and, like uh, I'm really I'll, I'll prob-
2: curious how that works.
1: I'll probably try some variation uh, of that again. I learned a few very small, simple things that are like super helpful. Like the the so the the biggest barriers to my educating my students this semester, hands down. Here here were the two biggest barriers. Uh, one, if you change the capitalization of a file and the capitalization only git or rather mac uh, osx will not track that as a file change uh, which means (laughs) that if you change the capitalization and then push an update to your website it will work locally but then the capitalization won't change on the remote because it didn't track that as a change Uh, and every single one of my students (laughs) could not grasp that concept (laughs) i didn't even know that was a thing that happened because i never used a capital letter in any of my file names in my entire life because why would you do that uh and then that was a huge barrier to learning because that took forever to figure out and the other problem is if you don't enter your email address in GitHub for Mac when you install it and set it up, then all of your commits are unverified and you can't publish your GitHub Pages website with that. Those two little details set me back like 30 hours of of (laughs) teaching time, uh, which I I hope to remedy in the future. And and that is, I think, the danger, Mitch, of sort of bringing the tools in is uh, you can run into little things like that, that all of a sudden, you know, you're teaching the class on how to, you know, install the command line tools and manually change your git config file because your commits aren't verified, meaning they're not getting accepted by the by the GitHub pages, uh, and that's like, it's just stupid shit that's horrible to deal with. Um, and, and, and I mostly agree with you that you, the thinking is much more important than, than the tools, but I also think there's this really important relationship we have with our tools where, you know, the design process is not simply, I sit in my head and I stew around and my amazing, you know, mind comes up with this incredible solution and then I just go make it. It's not just the, the production. Like the tools are an intimate part of that process. It's a conversation Absolutely. you have to, you know, have. So I, I did teach... I, I made, you know, technical things and, and tool-based things a part of the curriculum. And I did it in, in such a way that, you know, all the assignments were very sort of theoretical and taught what I hope are, are big, you know, design thinking things. Uh, and all of the critiques in class, all of our, most of our class time was spent talking about, you know, the, the work and uh, and learning in that regard. And then at the end of almost every class, I was like, all right, you can go if you want, but if you want to stick around, I'm going to spend, you know, 30 minutes teaching you how to use the transform each tool in Illustrator to do like some crazy thing. Uh, and I thought that was actually really, really successful. It seemed the students responded very positively to it, and I was able to show them things that you know I learned at some point in my uh, design career, and wished I had been learned a lot, a lot earlier. Um, and it was a mixture of some code stuff and some things in Illustrator and a thing or two in Photoshop. You know how to make like a bitmap TIFF and bring it into InDesign or, or Illustrator, just like simple things, so I could give them another thing in their tool belt that they could possibly use to uh, to design things with. And that ended up being kind of taxing on me, like doing a presentation like that at the end of every single class, like. I just wanted to go home and go to bed, especially after, especially after, you know, a seven hour work day and then a six hour class, I was just ready to to leave. Um, but I, that seemed like it was a decent enough way to approach that. I will say that a lot of the students kind of just, you know, whatever I taught as a demonstration would then just like go and do that for their next thing. And I was like, OK, right. because I showed you how to use, you know, transform again to make, you know, a big you know field of randomly sized and spaced, you know, shapes doesn't mean you should do that as your yeah. as your design. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's th- that mimicry, I think, is, is one of the things you have to avoid,
0: too. Actually, I want to I want to jump back for a second. I just I'm interested in the idea of just telling kids to figure it out or just to go Google something. One of the things I've I, I believe to be true is that the people that have that attitude anyway are going to be the most successful no matter what. Like I've had people come in who are like totally technically sufficient and they're, you know, they're great to work with because they know everything about it. But then they hit the speed bump of the thing they don't know. And it has to be a training course to get them to get them over that hurdle where there are some people that maybe are a little bit less so, but they just have that attitude of I'm going to figure it out myself. And you don't really have to train them through anything. You're kind of just working alongside them. Mitch, does the figure it out thing actually work or are those just, there's just some kids who are doing it and some kids who will never do it and they can't figure out anyone yet end up having to teach them.
2: Um, I think it works, but it works with a caveat, which is students spend a lot of time being irritated. <laughs> sure. With me, with me, like, like why the fuck aren't you teaching this to me? You know, and my answer is, is, if you want to learn to be an employee, I am more than willing to teach you which buttons to click all day. Like, we can do that. But I don't think that's really kind of what your goal is, you know, to be a kind of low level pixel pusher person, right? I mean, maybe it is, but that's well, I don't think it is. So, so I would rather teach you how to figure shit out and, and kind of be able to be reliant on yourself to some respect, especially in 2013, where literally everything is out there Every single thing you could possibly want to know about any piece of software is easily Googleable. All the students that I teach have access to lynda.com, which I think is tremendous. Um, none of them use it, but they should because it's great. It's, it's really, it's just fantastic. And so I think what ends up happening is most students after a while go, okay, I see what he's doing. He's not like lazy. He's actually making me think, and that's good. And then there are, again, the kind of lower end of the curve who are like, I just want you to tell me what to do. Again, I'm responsible for those students. I, I have an interest in those students, but those are not the students that I think are kind of going to go where they think they're going to go. You know, maybe they will and, and good and more power to them. And, and I would never be ever, ever say my way is the right way ever. I've never said that and I don't even think it. But, but I think that I'm doing it in a really conscious, you know, in, in a really directed way for a reason. Yeah. And, and I think it works pretty well for most students. No, I think even if that's just a skill, if you have the figure
0: it out skill, you're suited for so much more than if you just have these buttons do this and this version of the thing that will change in the future.
1: And if you can figure out how to teach the figure it out skill, that's that's huge. I, I was shocked at, I mean, I had a rule in my class where it was like, I'm always available, I'm never not by my computer or phone, if you have any issues with anything, you know, email me, I'm happy to help out, happy to hop on the little screen share and sort of show you something. Uh, But you have to Google it first. And nobody Googles anything first. And they send me an email like, how do I make this link red when I put my mouse over it? I'm like, did you Google it? And they go, oh, no, give me a second. I'm like, okay. Like, that should be your first reaction to anything in your whole life that you encounter that you don't understand. Like, we have the internet now, people. Like, Google it and learn something. Like, that's –
2: I I wish – And that's why my email policy is 24 hours. Specifically, so if you're losing your shit about something and it's due in six hours, uh, you, 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 I'm not going to answer you, period. Like, go figure it out because I'm not going to be available. Now, I make myself available like literally for finals weeks and stuff like that. But I do that not again out of laziness, I do it out of a real conscious effort for them to be independent. And I kind of feel like at the end of the day, an awful lot of what we're teaching is independent thought and independent action. And and at the end of the day, if you got to boil it all down, any art, design, whatever, sculpture, printmaking, graphic design, it doesn't matter. It's like learning to think independently and learning to really act and make independently. And and it's incredibly difficult to teach that because you're sort of always learning it, like in every moment of your life that you're awake, you're learning it. So to kind of say this is the curriculum, it's really hard, but I, I, I really feel pretty strongly that that's kind of the neighborhood we should be in.
0: This has been on the grid episode 47 you can email the show mail at on tweet to us hashtag on the grid or at matt MC, at andy Mangold, at dan hour if you want to submit a link for us to talk about on the if you enjoy the show please review it on itunes thanks to mitch for joining us thanks to girlfriends for the music and thanks to you for listening until next week
1: So, so when do you teach how to make minimal movie posters that can get on blogs?
2: Um, that I do in my electives gotcha. called gotcha. How that to makes Be sense. a Cool 101. It's called Douchebaggery it Elective. Yeah. Yeah.